0: and we discuss some of the most vital issues facing veterans today. Join us for this episode of Veteran Voices. Hey, good morning everybody. Scott Luton and Kelly Barner with you here on Veteran Voices. Kelly, how you doing?
1: I'm doing great, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: It is wonderful to have you back, special guest host. Beyond all the great things you do in supply chain procurement and global business, you're one of the leading veterans advocates I know. So, it's, a, it's an honor to have you back with us.
1: And you know what? These are the kinds of conversations to put all the other ones into perspective because we wouldn't be discussing the Ever Given or Long Beach or any of those other supply chain procurement type things if it weren't for the stories that we hear on Veteran Voices.
0: You are right. I can't agree with you more, but that's that's, uh, that's usually the case, uh, Kelly. You, you always are making, man, stealing our thunder, making all the good points here <laughs> on Veteran Voices and supply chain now. But hey, Folks, listeners, thanks for joining us here today. We've got a great conversation teed up with a veteran-turned-marketing and product management guru doing big things out in the industry, especially early-stage, high-tech companies. So stay tuned for a great discussion. Hey, Kelly, quick programming note before we get started here. I mentioned Supply Chain Now. Well, hey, this program is part of the Supply Chain Now family of programming. Today's show is conducted in partnership with our friends at Vets 2 Industry. They're doing some big things, learning about this powerful nonprofit, that's serving a ton of our veteran uh, community members at vets, the numeral two, industry.org. All right. So, Kelly, are you excited? I know you're excited about this guest. Y'all got some common ground, and some common history. So I appreciate your help facilitating this interview.
1: No, I'm very excited about this. I actually haven't spoken to this particular guest since I had a real job back <laughs> in the day when I had to drive in my car and go to an office. So this is this is very exciting for me.
0: It is. Well, uh, any friend of Kelly Barnes is a friend of ours here at Veteran Voices. So with no further ado, I want to welcome in our guest today. He's a Naval Academy graduate and former active duty Marine infantry officer. Let's welcome in Mr. Kevin Potts. Kevin, how are you doing?
2: I'm doing well, Scott. Thank you very much. And Kelly, it's great to reconnect again after all these years.
1: It definitely is.
2: You haven't changed a bit. <laughs>
1: Which is definitely not true, but thank you so much. I will love you forever for saying it.
0: <laughs> Very nice. This is going to be fun. Moving along, I'm always hesitant to put the word former into the same sentence with Marine. because right. like, Once a Marine, always a Marine. So I try to get that right. But <laughs> we're looking forward to diving into both your time in, the, in uniform and uh, all the great things you've been up to ever since. So absolutely. Before we get there. Before we even get to your time in uniform, Kelly and I like to kind of uh, better understand and and frankly uh, see the, the human side of our of our guests here. So tell us where you where did you grow up and give us some uh, stories behind your upbringing.
2: Absolutely, Scott. So I grew up in a town called Peoria, Illinois, which okay. you may have heard the same, "Will it play in Peoria?" as a <laughs> as a, a, a saying from a long time ago. So. Peoria uh, is the home of Caterpillar Tractor. Okay. I was the youngest of seven kids. My father ran a small accounting firm that worked with small businesses in and around. And, and at the time, I, I so I am literally the last day of the baby boomer age. So I was born on December 31st, 1964. And so when my oh kids my say, okay, boomer, <laughs> they're just stating a fact <laughs> But back then, Peoria was um, kind of seen as the cross-section of the country, at least culturally. And so many products were tested back in Peoria. And the belief was that if they were popular in Peoria, they'd be popular across country. I don't know if that's still the case anymore. But uh, And the reason why I got that saying is Peoria was the last step on the old, old, old vaudeville line. So they would Mm -hmm. test out shows. And if the audience in Peoria loved the Vaudeville show, then it would go up to Chicago and start making its way back to or towards New York City. Wow. So that was kind of where that original saying uh, came in from uh, from Peoria. But great place to grow up. In fact, three of my best friends still live there. So when I go back home, I get to see all of them at the same time.
0: That's awesome. Okay. Kelly, i tell you, I've learned more about Peoria in the last three minutes than I in my entire lifetime. I've never heard that phrase. It makes a lot of sense. Will it play in Peoria? And I can't wait to share that with Greg White, who probably has heard it and will get a kick out of it. But um, so growing, so, so if I can dive a little bit deeper, so growing up in Peoria, what you know, from a food standpoint, from a what you did to have fun? I mean, it's a big family, yep. so I bet yep. plenty of, of uh, colleagues for sports or whatever else. Yep. What was uh, what was instrumental in your upbringing?
2: Well, so. Both my parents worked. Uh, my mom was a nurse. And when I was young, she was a nurse working nights. And my dad, as I said, ran this small business. So I grew up in a, a family where I had five older sisters. And so a lot of my upbringing, at least like during the, the school day and the during the summer, was with my older sisters. I was riding around in the backseat of their boyfriend's car. <laughs> We were doing all sorts of fun stuff, you know. They all their boyfriends knew me by name, and I was kind of the sidekick that one of them had to drag along. But it was a it was a great experience. Um, And you know, the the thing that I think fondly of to my childhood is family dinner, and it's a big big thing that I like to emphasize to others is the importance of just gathering around the table. And we would have big debates around the table. My this was the time of uh, Women's liberation, Billie Jean King played, get his last name, Bobby
0: Bobby King, right? Yeah. Right.
2: They they played. It was a really big thing. Like we all watched that around the around the show. Bobby Bobby Riggs, maybe?
0: Bobby, yes. Yes, Bobby, Bobby Riggs, Riggs. Sorry.
2: Yeah. So I'm sorry too. I chose you. <laughs>
0: Not uh, Billy Jean King and Bobby Riggs. <laughs> I was trying to put them together. Exactly. Yeah, gotcha. So you.
2: you know, we watched that live on television and my sisters were were. Very much into that, and um, you know, it didn't mean anything to me. I was a young kid. I didn't, I didn't understand that these topics are issues, but they were very formative. I remember us all gathering around the black and white TV to see Neil Armstrong wow. hopping off the uh, off, hopping off the Apollo on the moon, and and so very, very formative time um, in terms of the country and a lot of what I learned about that time was from the dinner table.
0: So. I think uh, I'm going to switch up a smidge here because I'm going to, I'm going to get you and Kelly to talk about where y'all met. Cause I think that's a very important part mm-hmm. brings all home, but based on what you just shared there, formative time uh, on a variety of fronts, you, you attended the Naval Academy, right? And, and, right. and then you went on to serve actively in the Marines. Talk to us about your why, right? Talk about why, why Naval Academy, why military, Yeah, you know, cause I think that sounds Absolutely. connected to what you just shared.
2: Absolutely. So, My parents raised us to go out and see the world. They didn't expect us to come back to Peoria to live. They didn't expect, they they didn't tell us what to do. But the point was, was you were going to go to college and you were going to go out and do something in the world. And, you know, it wasn't, I mean, my dad made it explicitly clear. None of us were coming back to work in his company. I mean, it was, it was not something he wanted us to do. He wanted us to go make our own path in the world. And so, you know, that, that was one framework. And the other, the other kind of thing that was working in my mind, I didn't know it at the time, but, you know, if you think about life and, and kind of analogy for life that, you know, I, that what I've learned over time is there, there are two big analogies for life. One is life is a battle and the other is life is a journey. And I, I think they really to demonstrate how important these two are is that you know two of the greatest stories from ancient Greece that we still read today tell those two things. Uh, one is the Iliad, and that was life is a battle where the Greeks fighting the Troy uh, Trojans, and the other is life is a journey, and that's the Odyssey uh, after the Iliad and and Odysseus goes and explores the world. And so you can now see that that calling me, the military calling me in the sense of, at the time, going to the Naval Academy and going out and kind of seeing the world, and and that was something that was a big, big promise that I was very much called to, and and so it offered a great opportunity to do that, and that's really what I thank the military for more than anything is just the experience that I would have never had. Now I get into the I get into the Naval Academy, and I'm I'm there for four years, and I'm exposed to lots of military officers who are the instructors and the the company officers and the like. And Scott, the one thing that, that the Marine Corps is always doing is it's always recruiting. It is always putting its best people in front of its recruits. And so you think about, many people don't know this, but one out of every six graduates from the Naval Academy goes into the Marine Corps. In fact, it's called the Naval Academy and not the Navy Academy because there are actually two naval services. There's the U.S. Navy and there's the United States Marine Corps. Right. So they both are feeders to that. So the Marine Corps was always this kind of had this aura about it. And uh, you know, the slogan in the Navy was "See the world." In the Army, it was you know maybe I don't know. Um, it was good stuff,
0: It was get stuff done by nine a.m. Right. Yeah, get get more stuff done, than exactly. anyone else does all day. And in the Air Force,
2: you know, was learn a technical skill and 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 master that, and you know what people don't understand is the Marine Corps did a, offered all those things. You got a GI Bill, you could learn a technical skill, you could see the world, you had a lot of stuff done before nine a.m. But the Marine Corps never, never, never promoted that. Marine Corps was always about, we're not sure you're good enough to be one of us. So there was this sense of like, prove it, and and that was really calling to me that that sense of leadership. And they always used to joke that every piece of Marine Corps equipment had been used for the, by the army for 10 years now, and then was handed down to the Marine Corps because we won war not with the best equipment, we won it with our Marines. Mm-hmm. And, and that was just a, you can imagine kind of a kid coming out of the Midwest, wanting to to kind of live this life as a battle and life as a journey. And, and it kind of fell, the Marine Corps was a, the perfect place where that all came together
0: for me. I love it. Okay. So Kelly, I'm going to pass the baton to you. I think when we get into his transition out of the military, we'll, we'll connect mm-hmm. the ties that bind there. But let's talk, let's keep going around his uh, experiences wearing a uniform.
1: Absolutely. So Kevin, we know the journey that you took to get to the Marines, but what did you do once you were in?
2: Yeah, that's a brings back a lot of memories, Kelly, that question. I joined in 1987 and it was a time mostly of peace there were some small conflicts in the world the cold war had not yet ended so I actually went to East Berlin on a vacation and I actually had to wear my uniform because if you were in East Berlin at that time and you were a military person and you weren't in uniform you'd be caught as a spy you know the last thing I needed to do was generate an international (laughs) diplomatic incident right as my right as I got commissioned as a second lieutenant but it was, a, it was a, a, a time of, I think, peace, So and, and we could get a sense that, obviously, the Cold War was coming to an end. I joined the infantry, and I spent two deployments overseas, so this is kind of my see the world stories. I have a year and a half of my life on board Navy ship. I got to see and float through the Mediterranean and, and tour many countries in Europe and in Africa. And in the Middle East, and I got to spend a lot of time also, these aren't necessarily the places that you would go or take your children, let me say. These are not necessarily places you'd go for family vacation, (laughs) but I got to see a a great part of the world, and and it was a a very, very exciting time. And then the second half of my time, I was uh, on shore and shore duty, and I spent three years out in San Diego, which is kind of like college all over again. So it was a really, really fun time. (laughs) love it. And
1: Scott, I'm not going to cheat and get too far ahead because I know we're going to come back to that. Yep. But what Kevin was just saying about it being in college again, this was at least a recurring joke within the consulting team at M which is the company that Kevin and I met at. And the guy that led the team, his name was Sean Devine. He had this one icebreaker question. You're welcome to steal it. You're not going to want to, though. <laughs> his one icebreaker question was, how many toes would you give to go back to college and do it all over again. Wow.
0: <laughs> wow. So, exactly. Yeah. Exactly.
1: So San Diego giving up toes to go back to college again. Something that makes San Diego look pretty good, right? Yes. Absolutely.
0: Yes. I, I'll keep on my toes. Thank you. And, and <laughs> I, lo- I we all had fun, but uh, um, yeah, I'll keep on my toes. So <laughs> I won't be stealing that icebreaker question, Kelly. That's a dangerous one. <laughs> no.
1: No, you know, it has a a way of not actually breaking the ice, but sort of thickening the ice a little bit, depending on who you ask it of.
0: Well, I can think of several hosts that have our guests that have appeared on our joint programming, (laughs) uh, Kevin and Kelly, that I would be really scared of their answer to that question. You know, some wild cards uh, that might come to mind, Kelly. So who knows? We may have to experiment down the road a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Keeping our toes.
1: Yeah, Exactly. All
0: right. So where are we going next, Kelly?
1: So next, and, and this comes back to actually part of why Kevin's here. So, Kevin, you were just recently sharing some stories. Uh, it was the Marine Corps birthday. And so you were kind of digging back through your past. Now, I'm going to admit I was surprised at some of these stories, um, I remember right from the very beginning, almost, knowing that you were a former Marine. Um, although, as Scott points out, there's no such thing as a former Marine. I remember thinking, this briefing is really intense. And somebody leaned over, I could see the look on my face, and just said, he was a Marine. Right. <laughs> I gotcha. Okay. No more questions. Um, but you didn't necessarily have the flawless straight up time and service that I would have expected having worked no. with you in the corporate sector. So any of those stories or even new ones that maybe didn't make the LinkedIn cut that you want yeah, to share in this yeah, conversation? I'll, I'll,
2: tell you, I'll tell you a couple of stories. So you know, one thing about the world today is we have this social profile. We have this presentations persona on LinkedIn or on social media. And we're always putting our best foot forward. And we always think, boy, no one else ever makes mistakes. No one else has ever done anything really, really stupid. So part of my writing those stories was just to kind of break the ice to, to people I know on LinkedIn of, hey, here's some dumb stuff I did. And, you know, I'm lucky sometimes that I still think I'm lucky I'm here, but um And some of it was funny jokes that were played on me. And and that was kind of the spirit of what I was trying to do. But but in a broader context, Kelly, and I'll tell a couple of these stories, in a broader context, what I was trying to share with people is that the military exposes you to things that you would never get exposed to in the corporate world. And that is life enriching. So it started my summer before my senior year at the Naval Academy. So I was um, not even a Marine yet. And I was doing a tour during the summer with a Marine unit out at the Marine Corps Mountain Warfare Center, which is somewhere in the Sierra Nevadas of, of uh, California. And so we're at about, think of it like we're, we're operating at about 10,000 feet, probably a little less, like probably between eight and 10,000 feet. And we're doing all sorts of super fun stuff. So I'm, I'm with a platoon of Marines. I have a... A platoon commander, he was a gunner from Vietnam. So think of this as a very, in the Marine Corps, we use the word crusty, which meant very seasoned person. And he took me under my wings, and I, under his wings. I was kind of his assistant platoon commander and he treated me very well um, and made sure that I got the exposure I needed to do to make a decision about the Marine Corps. But, this, you know, think about this like this is like outward bound, but you're getting paid to do it. Uh, We were building rope bridges across rapid rivers. We were rappelling. We were rock climbing. We were doing all sorts of super fun stuff, learning how to maneuver a unit kind of across a mountain. And it, it was really, really fun. Now, Naval Academy graduates and also NROTC graduates are often referred to as baby O's or baby zeros. Um, and that's because the O stands for officer and they're not yet officers yet. We're we're really babies. We haven't been commissioned yet. So the joke is, you know, they, behind your back, they call you baby O. So, you know, what did baby O do today? What, what stupid thing did baby O do? So one of the things I was trying to, I don't know, it was like 150
0: pounds. I gotta, I gotta interject just a second, Kevin. That seems very tame for nicknames in the Marines. I was was waiting a really exciting (laughs) definition of that O. And it's, and, and so I got to tell you, you're, you're surprising me here.
2: Well, this is probably the, the more, uh, yeah, the more friendly, <laughs> there were probably other names, which I never heard of. <laughs> um, but, but Scott, they, uh, so I was a 150 pound kid, really skinny, but one thing I could do is I could kind of, I'm like the energizer buddy. I could just keep going and going and going. And one of the things that, that officers always try to do is, never ask more of the Marine than you're going to do yourself. So we would often make sure that our backpack had was the heaviest one to be carried. And so I wanted to make sure that, I, I don't know that I had the absolute heaviest one to carry, but I had a super heavy one and I stuffed lots of clothes, lots of gear in there and would have it. And most of this gear, you know, this is mountain warfare kind of winter style, but we were there in the summer. So a lot of this gear You are never going to wear, you know, it's got, you know, uh, wool underwear and stuff like that and all sorts of rain gear, but it was a pretty heavy pack. I wouldn't, I would venture to say it was between 50 and 60 pounds, not what they were wearing in Iraq or Afghanistan, but at that time. And so I go in at the end of this, uh, the end of the, um, to turn my gear in the last day of the training before I'm heading back to the East coast and I'm unpacking it and there's plaster, you know, you're handing it all back in. And down at the bottom, there's this plastic bag and this heavy object. And I pull it out and I unwrap it. And there is a 10-pound rock at the bottom of my pack that there's no doubt one Marine snuck in there when I was not looking. And that rock said to Baby O from the Marines of the 3rd Herd, which was the 3rd Platoon, 2nd Battalion, 23rd Marines, Las Las Vegas, Nevada. And uh, the joke was on me. And I, I, to this day, I still have that rock. It sits on my bookcase. It is no longer just a rock. It is a a memento or a piece of art from my time back when I was just learning whether I wanted to be a
1: Marine or not.
0: That is awesome. That is awesome. Kelly. Well, <laughs> Hey, we're all carrying rocks physically or um... mm-hmm.
1: metaphorically. Yes. Thank you, <laughs> Kelly.
0: The smart one. Absolutely.
1: I am here. Thanks for joining (laughs) us, everybody. I've now
0: filled my. Well, I was really, be (laughs) frankly, uh, Kevin, when you were uh, alluding to the famous Greece stories and and mythology, Kelly, I was waiting for you to dive in and tell us about Homer and and the importance of uh, of his writings on humankind, huh?
1: I, hey, that's going to have to be another podcast. Are we going to start maybe like a literary video <laughs> podcast on the, as part of the supply chain now? Absolutely. It's,
0: it's kind of like that little subgroup in the uh, sitcom, The Office, where a couple of them got in the lunchroom for, uh, I can't mm-hmm. remember what they called the fancy club, where they reviewed <laughs> yeah. some novels. So <laughs> we'll, we'll hold out for that, Kelly. But um, All right. So we're kind of the, that question, which led to that rock story of something gets snuck in his rucksack was part of what you had seen him sharing across social. What else, before we get into some of the folks he served with?
2: Yeah, I think a topical story nowadays, I I call this story how I almost set Southern California on fire. (laughs) I was... uh, I, Kevin Fox, just to be clear. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's topical now because, obviously, forest fires are raging everywhere. You know, back in the, this was early 90s. This was probably 91, maybe early 92, um, or in 92, I should say. Forest fires were not of the scale they are today. They did not make front page headlines in the New York Times back then, although they still happen, but they were not of that level. So we were down in San Diego, and I was what was called the guard officer for a unit of Marines that guarded uh, basically guarded part of a naval base and these marines think of these marines like security guards they're they're not the typical marine that's out storming the beaches they are more working inside a double-fenced compound and making sure that no one gets in there alive and if they get in there they don't get out alive so they're carrying live bullets 24 hours a day and stuff like that but i wanted to give them some real life what you think of as the the fun marine corps training So uh, we were fortunate that we were about an hour and a half south of Camp Pendleton, which is one of the big Marine Corps bases um, in Southern California, kind of touches the Pacific Ocean between San Diego and L.A. And I drove up there with one of the people I'll tell you about a little later to kind of get some training area reserve so I could bring the Marines up and we could do some live fire and fun stuff like that. Well. We were low, low unit on the totem pole because all the infantry units and all the artillery units in Camp Pendleton got first picked. So I'm like, you know, they're, they're not going to know me from Adam and they're going to they're gonna kind of laugh me out when I ask for a training range. So I thought, hmm, how am I going to be able to do this? So what I decided was I'm going to buy two cases of beer and I am going to drive up to the operations center at Camp Pendleton and there's going to be a gunnery sergeant in there and I am just going to carry two cases of beer in. And say, Gunny, I have brought you a present. And I, this was not a quid pro quo. I was living there whether Gunny was going to help me or not, but I felt that he would understand the nice gesture and he would help me. And sure enough, that gunnery sergeant secured for me training areas that I could use. So we took the Marines up. We had some fun. We, we fired rifles, we fired machine guns, uh, we got live hand grenades, and we threw hand grenades. And that was a real, that was a real, Eye opener. I, you know, basically, the, for those of you who know, a uh, hand grenade's like a um, like a baseball in size. It's got a little pin on it. You pull that pin out, it starts to fuse, and then it's got about two seconds. So basically, you've got to wing that out into the range. And either myself or the platoon sergeant was standing next to each Marine as they did it, just to make sure. That they remembered to duck because <laughs> we once again did not want any kind of casualties so i probably once or twice i had to grab a marine and we ducked back behind the sandbags after the uh grenade or before the grenades exploded but the point was just to show them hey you know you probably have never thrown a hand grenade before maybe you threw one in basic training but i doubt it but um but you know you got to get comfortable with these kinds of, of things so so the final training This is the last day that we've been up there for like three days and we're getting kind of tired and all the final training is a live fire, not a live fire, uh, a maneuver along a hillside where we're pretending to attack. So we're firing blanks. These are not real bullets, but we do have some pyrotechnics and pyrotechnics are like smoke. Think of like smoke grenade that you would throw to mask your movement. So a big cloud of smoke would come up and you could kind of move behind it. And then we had um, flares. So you would shoot a signal flare up in the air. And the signal flare would maybe give an announcement to a unit that was next to you, but not couldn't hear you that it was time to start moving forward to start right. the attack. So there's a certain uh, a signal flare, think of it like it's an aluminum tube that's maybe the size of a large flashlight. Okay. And there's a proper technique where you hold it like this. So when you pop it up, it shoots straight up. Because if you were to hold it like this and you hit it, you might hit it sideways. Well,
0: I think this Marine <laughs> ruined did, someone's day, probably. Yeah,
2: this Marine did not. Yeah, exactly, Scott. This Marine did not use the proper technique. So the flare, rather than going up, bounced across the golden hillside of California. <laughs> so this is probably late summer. Oh my um, gosh. You know, everything's turned brown. And so, lo and behold, Little pockets of fire start to erupt. And we're sitting there, and you know, like we all want to go home now. We're 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 tired, (laughs) we've been up for gotten very little sleep, and and I'm thinking, maybe, maybe it'll just go out, maybe it'll just go out. And it took a little while to kindle, but all of a sudden we have these pockets of fire, and before you know it, they're all converging into one large fire. And I'm thinking, holy cow, I do not want to be the lieutenant that makes the front page of the San Diego Tribune is <laughs> having burned downtown Pendleton. So this was probably completely unorthodox, and we, um, you know, every firefighting manual that that, that they produce would probably say don't do this. But we got online. We had little shovels. We had some water in our canteens. Some Marines pulled off their flak jackets, and we're just flapping uh-huh. it down. And probably over a half hour, we finally put it out. And it was funny because each time you thought you had it out little parts would start to to erupt again. Wow. So so it was a it was a very very good thing. And you know, I, to me the story there is lots of things can kind of be obviously catastrophic. I'm not trying to downplay how bad forest fires can be. They can be right. awful. Mm-hmm. Sure. But the point is is that we lined up as a team and we did what we felt we needed to do and there was no debate everyone did it. And that was kind of a, that's a, that was a great lesson that, I mean, you learn teamwork in, in the corporate world, but that's a different kind of teamwork.
0: I love that.
1: Kelly. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and you know what? Not being able to quit. You can't be like, you know what? I put in my time. I'm just gonna, I'll catch you guys. No. I see like, one
0: more cold beer over there from those two <laughs> cases.
1: <laughs> you exactly. guys mind if I go grab that last beer? <laughs> <laughs>
0: exactly. Exactly. <laughs>
1: Oh, well, Kevin, you've talked an awful lot about how formative the military was for you. And we sort of talked about some collective stories. But yeah. one of the things that I know people look forward to that listen to veteran voices is hearing about a couple of the individuals yeah. that really influenced you. So you talked about your your crusty. Friend, right? That you served yep. under. Uh, yep. But how about a couple of other specific people that really made an impact on you during your time in the service? Yeah. yeah.
2: So two people that are extremely memorable to me were both people I served with out in San Diego at North Island with the Naval Air Station North Island where we served. The first was a, a, a gentleman named Major Gene McCleskey, and Gene, he subsequently was promoted to Lieutenant Colonel, but he was my commanding officer out in San Diego. He was the commanding officer of the entire Marine barracks, Marine Corps Security Force company out there, probably about 200 Marines. Gene comes from West Texas, um, out in Odessa, that area, and he had a Texas accent, but a attitude about him that was basically no show, patient, calm, act with reason, don't get flustered. Nothing could fluster him. He was just so easygoing and when you were around him you felt at ease you didn't feel anxious or anything like that he made the whole unit feel at ease and and he just had a comfortable way of interacting with everybody and he really became a mentor of mine and my last role in that i was the executive officer of the unit so that's think of it as second in command he was the commanding officer and he basically basically let me Run the entire unit. The only two things I could not do because of, the you know the the, the regulation of the court, I could never promote anybody, and I could never punish anybody. So he had to do all that. But everything else, he let me do, um, and oversaw me, and gave me advice and, and guidance and stuff like that. So he really let me step into his role, and but was there to make sure I didn't fail. And so so that, he was probably one of the absolute. Best bosses I've ever had, and the other guy was a guy named Brian Pakwa. And Brian was uh, when I first got there, he was a corporal, and I believe he was meritoriously promoted to sergeant. I'm not sure if he was. I think he was meritoriously promoted to sergeant at uh, at North Island. Meritorious promotion is when you go above and beyond your peers, and you get uh, promoted ahead of cycle. And Brian, what astounded me about Brian was he just had a can do attitude and he, you know, there was nothing that he he just didn't take no for an answer. Like, so if if we were struggling to get something done and we ran into a roadblock, he'd come back and say, you know, Captain Potts, let's think this over. We got to be able to do this. Let's think this over. And he was incredibly audacious. He was just like, let's, let's shoot for the moon and let's try to make it. And that was such a infectious attitude that that really helped shape my kind of view of the world after, after serving with him in that, you know, a lot of success and audacity comes from your belief that you can do it. And it isn't necessarily your credentials. It isn't necessarily the people you know. It's the willpower that right. you muster within yourself.
0: Mm. So I got the Major McCleskey and then Sergeant, what was his last name? Pacwa.
2: His his last name was spelled P-A-Q-U-A. Okay. Brian Popwell.
0: Have have you uh, had any interaction with them since you uh, transitioned out of the Marines?
2: It's funny that you say that because just recently I have reached out to both of them via email and Facebook to reconnect. Not at all related to this story. I mean, I didn't even know you were going to ask me that question. But I've, I've had this sense of trying to reconnect. The last time I talked to um, Colonel McCluskey was probably 2002, 2003, wow. a Marine that we both knew uh, had passed away, and we were just connecting on that.
0: Hmm. Well, hey, here's to y'all getting together and, and sharing an adult beverage and, and lots of uh, stories of what y'all did together and, and getting caught up on what's, what's transpired since. So uh, we'd love to, we'll circle back and, and see how that goes.
2: Kevin. Please do. Please
0: do. All right. So let's talk about. Uh, I bet you've got, I bet you could write a book with your stories and experiences uh, between what you did to Marines and now where we're going is what you, know, you, you know, after your transition and then what you've been doing since. Now, before we get into that transition, let's just make the connection between you and Kelly because to yeah. our listeners, uh, as Kelly alluded to earlier, you know, between what Kevin was sharing and stories on, on social, it kind of, they, they reconnected and Kelly's like, hey, this is a veteran. We've got to get on Veteran Voices and yeah. get them to share. So, how where, again, where did y'all meet uh, Kelly?
1: So, we met at a company called Amtaurus. Now, ironically, I didn't work there a super long time. I think I was there from, oh my gosh, like 2004, 2005 to 2008. I was the Associate Director of Consulting. Actually, at least towards the end of that time, working for another veteran, uh, U.S. Navy officer named Sean Carell, not the guy that wanted you to trade out your toes. That was Sean Devine, not a veteran. This is Sean Carell. You get to keep all your toes. Um, but I was customer facing. And so once a year, we would have this massive conference. And to tell you the truth, Kevin, you may remember it differently, but that was really the time of year that I remember having a lot of contact with marketing. So Kevin was head of marketing at mTourist for the time. I was already on my procurement journey, so we were doing you know spend management work. Um, but all the rest of the year, we'd be dealing with the technical teams, we'd be dealing with finance, we'd be dealing with sales a lot. But this was kind of the one time a year that we spent a lot of really focused time working with marketing. And It's funny because when I think back to who did what did you learn from different people along the way, there are actually two Kevin Potts things that I learned in that brief window that I have carried with me through every single role that I've been in since.
2: Mm.
1: One was that the details matter, and this particular conference was called Amptoris Empower. And you know, around the office, it was exhausting. So you got to the point where you just empower, empower, empower. Kevin sat us all down. No, the details matter. If they matter to us, they will matter to the customers. All of this comes together. Do not let me hear you at the conference referring to this as Empower. This is Amtaurus Empower. And just that mindset of it doesn't matter what role you're in or who you are, if you pay attention to the details, the collective quality and success of the whole team, it just it takes a step up in a way that it can't without that. And the other thing, now, Kevin, this may or may not be from your your military service, but it struck me as being a little bit drill oriented <laughs> at the time. Um, was that you know we had a, a keynote stage right with a big, huge convention center, but then there would be all the little breakout rooms where people would go for panels and, and things. And you had said to us, "It's going to be crowded," and it was. I mean, this was back in the days when people would pack these rooms in the seaport in Boston, and you'd said, if there is one customer standing in the room, there is not one mTaurus person sitting in a chair. The last person in the room to take a seat is the first mTaurus person. And to me, just that, that courtesy, that sense of, you know not necessarily saying oh you know we're here to serve you not so much that kind of messaging but just little ways of discreetly communicating respect that's one of those things that i have always carried with me so it was a it was a fun job from my perspective it was about the next closest thing to college it was consulting so it was 8000 and a half percent travel but it was it was a blast it was the kind of job you worked. You know, all nighters, and you know, for days and days and days, you worked. But it was a really fun place to work, and I feel very fortunate that in that short window of time, my path crossed with Kevin's.
0: Mm. Kevin, your response? Yeah. Well, so first
2: of all, Kelly, I'm I'm very touched. You bring up points that I had long since forgotten, but I'm glad that they they made a a impact on you, and um, it brings back a lot of memories of that. Um, What I remember. So, so if you think about how easy it is to talk to Kelly, she had three or four other peers and a boss that were carbon copies. I mean, this was a group that you loved to hang out with at the end of the work week, grabbing a beer or something like that. And Kelly was so approachable and so friendly from a personal point of view, personal rapport, right. very, very friendly. But the other part is Kelly knew the customers. And she knew the customers that were willing to talk and the customers that had good stories because she was doing the business consulting to help them. So, if a customer had a really good story and was a good speaker, I needed to work with Kelly to recruit that person. And it'd be someone like Kelly who had the bond. Like, they wouldn't answer my call. Right. They'd well, answer a call from Kelly.
0: So, my question is, that it take two cases of beer to
1: get <laughs> Kelly to
0: cooperate? <laughs>
1: No, but I it did take two that.
0: toes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I, I won't go. I, we won't touch champagne. Uh, Kelly, yes. We, yes. we've <laughs> already right. learned that.
1: Um, holidays
0: only. <laughs> <laughs> holidays only. Okay. So uh, I know an, an hour never do, the, does these conversations justice, but I want to, um, now that we've kind of gone forward after you transitioned and made the connection between Kelly and Kevin, now I want to go back to yep. uh, separating from the Marines. Tell us a little bit about that transition. And then also at the same time, some advice for any of our military mis- uh, members listening or veterans listening that are transitioning and, and working their way out uh, up up the pro- uh, private sector.
2: Yeah. So, you know, my transition is probably, uh, I was very fortunate in, in one way in that when I transitioned, I was going back to school. So I was using school as a, couple of year, uh, a graduate degree, in this case, a graduate degree in business, as a way to kind of help me, A, build a network, B, build, you know, be able to speak the vernacular of business and kind of help in that transition. I know many, many vets don't have that luxury. So many people are going straight into the workforce. And, and I can't, you know, I, that I, I imagine that would have been Very, I imagine that is very, very difficult. Um, And I didn't have to do that. So I went to business school and then I worked at a consulting firm for a couple of years after that, which I look at as kind of like a postdoc from business school where you get even more training in how businesses work. And,
0: And when you say consulting firm, if I'm not mistaken... One of the basically like big four, right? Is a, it's a big firm, right? Correct.
2: A company called McKinsey, which is a it was a it was a great opportunity for me. I got once again, I got to go back and travel the world. They took me to China, they took me to France, they took me to the UK. Wow. But I also spent a lot of time in in Central Texas. Um, depends <laughs> on what kind of study you got, but but I overall <laughs> I I did very well uh, in terms of the the parts of the world I got to see and and the work I got to do, and it was it was very very exciting. But yes, it was a great kind of transition. And so that thing of that is like four years from my time in the Marine Corps before I actually got into a job, which became my career. And that was in marketing and high technology. Um, and I was right at the start of the dot-com boom. So it was kind of a great time to, uh, to realize that I want to be in technology and I want to be in marketing, but it took four years to figure that out for me. Now, piece of advice that, that I, you know, and this is, not advice I followed. <laughs> it was advice I figured out over over twenty plus years of. But oftentimes, when we are recruiting and trying to get hired, we're trying to get hired by a company, and we're trying to get hired into a certain function. You know, I want to. I think I'd be good at operations or supply chain or marketing. You know, I did. I I did this work in the Marine Corps, so maybe I'll be good at HR. So we we think about that. And if I had to do it all over again, I would recruit not for a company and not for a job, but for a boss. Because what I've realized in my career of 25 years post the Marine Corps was how much I learned from great bosses who were willing to take the time and teach me on the job. And I had plenty of bosses that didn't do that either. So having someone, even if you're, even if you're not sure, you know, maybe you don't end up in marketing, maybe you move to operations, or maybe you don't end up in supply chain, you move over to IT. But having someone who can help you start to learn the ins and outs of a job and a career is really, really important. And oftentimes, I don't I, – I, well, I'll tell you how I felt. I felt like I'm smart. I can figure it out myself. Right. I'll figure it out myself. And I don't need anybody. And I realize now that that was such a, a naive point of view.
0: Well, you know, I think some of the best advice, uh, especially as we reflect and and offer up now, whether it's advice that we used, which is helpful, right? And that we practiced. But man, some of these missed opportunities that leads into the best advice that we didn't follow in our own journeys. Exactly. That's <laughs> the powerful stuff, right? Yeah. I can think of, I mean... You know, I didn't. Uh, I was. I was um, a data analyst in Air Force. Got out in O2, yeah. You know, had all the reason in the world to leverage my time working with data. You know, long before big data became a thing, and had I just leveraged that and and really leaned into that experience, who knows what that path would have been. But I was like, I'm. You know, I hear you can make a bunch of money in sales. I want. I want. I want. You know, figure that out. Never had any yeah. experience in that, and it changed you know, it made, it made those early years coming out of the Air Force a little more challenging perhaps than than uh, otherwise. But, you know, I appreciate you taking a moment to reflect on your uh, transition. And I want to combine Kevin's uh, insights and advice there with Kelly Barners. Kelly, you and I have had uh, several opportunities to not not mentor, but just kind of hear veterans out that are transitioning and And, you know, those are tough conversations because as you and I have chatted, Kelly, you're trying to kind of, in a short amount of time, kind of assess what they're looking to do and then also offer some kind of viable advice like Kevin shared. So, Kelly, what would you, if you're speaking to a room full up in the New York City, Ritz Carlton, I'm not sure if there's still one up there or not, room full (laughs) of veterans that are your captive um, audience, what advice would you offer up, Kelly?
1: So I think the advice that I would offer up is maybe twofold, right? But they they very much go together. You know, one is if you're going into a situation where you do have to apply for a job and that application is coming in the form of a resume, a cover letter, I think that's really hard because you're taking a person and a really colorful rich experience and you're boiling it down to two sheets of paper. But okay. sometimes that's the process and that's just how you've got to go. And in that case, I would say find someone, friend, family, neighbor, that will be really harshly honest with you. Are there typos? Is it not professionally worded? Is it not representative of your experience? I would say find someone that is willing to help you by being as brutally honest as they need to be, but then find another way to bring your personality in right, of all the veterans that we've heard on this podcast and other places telling their stories, right, hearing Kevin's stories here, the life that comes into that, if you're the boss that has someone looking to join the team, how do you not want to bring this person into the fold? So, finding a way to get your personality across, maybe it's through a brief pre-recorded video that goes along with your resume that says like, hey, Mr. or Ms. So-and-so, please just, you know, take a look at my resume. It may not be what you're used to seeing, but give me a shot because I bring this whole richness with me. Right. And before I give it back to you, Scott, I actually have a question for, for Kevin. So knowing your leadership experience... And knowing that you were an officer, one of the things that I don't feel like translates real well to the private sector is sort of the notion of influence and authority. I mean, in the private sector, we're always all trying to build it. A lot of times we're trying to influence people without having authority, which is an enormous challenge, but very common. Whereas in the military, and not speaking obviously from my own experience, but from what I've learned, authority is more or less an absolute thing right you've got the hierarchy you've rules are what they are and they are to be followed and yet the stories like the ones that you've shared today or the relationships that you've talked about every single one of these conversations mirrors that there is a, a love of connection and loyalty that seems to come from people's military experience and i'm curious about what people in the private sector can learn from people that have been through military service. We're so built, busy trying to build influence without having authority, and yet you guys, to an extent, are handed authority but go so far beyond influence and turn it into a camaraderie, love. I mean, I don't even know the word, but you hear it in every single one of these stories. I would, I would love to get your perspective on what we can learn in the private sector from the way that the military not only handles authority, but also builds those bonds between units and and teams.
2: Yeah. You know, one of the Marines I went through my basic officer training at Quantico with after his time in the Marine Corps went over to work at 3M and he was a brand manager for some product line at 3M. And I remember an anecdote, he told me that Maybe they're getting ready for a new product launch or something like that. And it was extremely chaotic. And Kelly, this would be like us, Adam Taurus, launching the next version of our software. And you know, a lot <laughs> yeah. of details you're trying to pull together and, yeah. and all that stuff. And he just was he said, so finally, I sat down with the team because people getting very stressed. And I sat down with the team and I just said, okay, everybody, let's take a deep breath here. No one is going to die in this process. No one is going to get shot at. We are not going to have any casualties as part of this product launch. Right. So let's keep this in perspective. And that's one of the things that I think the military does a really good job of is exposing you to situations that sometimes are so far beyond the pale. And like, you don't have a guidebook there to tell you, you know, open a page 127 for how to deal with this thing. You know, you got to kind of figure it out and you got to collectively figure it out as a team. Right. And, and and I think that's, you know, one of the values. But you can't read that. You got to experience it. And that's one of the things that I love about the military is it's the experience you get. And and you get people coming in who who've seen some stuff. And I, certainly I didn't see anything like what the Marines are seeing today. You know, think about the the nightmare getting out of Afghanistan. You know, right. yes. I can't even imagine what they faced. Those those people have dealt with incredibly stressful situations and they're going to have a lot to give right. because they're going to come with a perspective yeah. that many of us will never have been exposed to.
0: Right. And, and then tying that back to transitioning, it can make that from the thousands of conversations I've had since 02, you know, some have been on these podcasts, many others have been private learnings and, and really conversations of struggles. You know, everyone's transition can be very differently. So I appreciate how you kind of couch yours, you know, cause I, I had a four-year degree. I was not a combat veteran. Uh, I had a strong uh, family and friend network and I still struggled to transition. Now, I didn't have yeah. a lot of those challenges That to your point that that many others, especially in the last uh, twenty years, have. So we got to keep that in mind. I really appreciate both of your comments and questions around this advice piece. And uh, Kevin, thanks again for sharing some of your transition with our listeners. So let's talk about as we start wrap here on today's uh, Veteran Voices with uh, Mr. Kevin Potts. Let's talk about what you're up to now. You've you've gone on you know, do some really big things in an exciting aspect of industry, right? Early stage tech, uh, often uh, founder-involved um, companies and initiatives. So, so tell us what you're up to now. Yeah. So, right now,
2: I um, I am consulting with actually one of my old bosses who taught me so much about marketing. He founded his own consulting firm and I work with him where he places me in to help with some of the companies he's working with. And my main role in marketing, so these are early stage tech companies that are oftentimes, no one's ever heard of them. They're trying to raise money. They're trying to get some of their first sales. And what I am trying to do is help them talk to the person who has the pain and teach the salespeople not to talk about what the product does, but talk about what the person's pain is. Mm. And, um, you know, maybe maybe an analogy here would be uh, something that we're all very familiar with now, but when it was first coming out, we might not have been familiar with it was GPS. So if you think about GPS, it's on your phone, it can tell you how to get, you know, to school or to wherever. GPS is incredibly complex. It's got satellites orbiting the earth, It's got this map, it's got all this stuff, but now GPS is, you know, secondhand for almost all of us that, you know, drive in big cities and have to navigate around uh, traffic. Well, if you think about that, when we were first learning about GPS, we weren't excited about the satellites. We didn't care about the satellites. We didn't care about what was happening inside the phone to do it. What we did is we had a problem we needed to figure out how to get to point A to point B and we've never been to point B before. Or alternately, we had to get from point A to point B and we only had 30 minutes to do it. What's right. the fastest way to do it? That is the problem. Um, and so learning to, to talk about very complex topics in very easy-to-use analogies that people can get is what I try to work with sales teams on.
0: I, I love that. Uh, it's such, it's, that's great advice for any... any- uh, listeners that may be considering uh, you know founding your own business starting up a business you name it because uh, Kevin to your point no one cared uh, no one knew and no one cared about how it worked they just cared about what it did for them right Absolutely. and we all missed it. well uh, I was gonna say we all missed the days no we all remember the days <laughs> of the map quest printed out direction yes. especially oh, yes Do y'all remember well, Kelly and the Kevin the trip
1: check. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> right but yes uh, Tom, Turkey time or whatever whatever that GPS specific directions, which is now on our phones. But you know, oh, yeah. I, I remember back in the earliest of days when I first moved to Atlanta when I had a a, a 10 stop sales day or you know, whatever it was, yeah. I would I would use MapQuest and map it all out and then I'd have 20 pages of directions <laughs> of navigating through Atlanta. It was yeah. it's crazy where we are yeah. and where we've been. But great advice, uh, Kevin. And that's really built, if I understand correctly. When did you exit the Marines?
2: I got out in ninety four.
0: Okay. So that, so if I understand it correctly, a lot of what you're doing now, you're leveraging a couple of decades of working with tech, uh, early stage companies. So you're really, gosh, I bet you're a a secret weapon for these companies you're working with now.
2: Well, what you realize is the problems never change. I mean, you've got a sales team, people go to what they're comfortable with. They Mm -hmm. like to talk about the product. And so, you know, as much as technology has advanced so much that we do, and a lot of the conversations now happen on the web or, or happen in, in video calls or stuff like that. The problem, at least in larger scale tech sales, is the same, which is you don't have the right to talk about the product until the customer tells you they care.
0: <laughs> I love that. <laughs> what a great, great advice. So, Kevin, let's make sure... Folks know how to connect with you, uh, and uh, you know, Kelly. It feels like we could have a, a Kevin Potts series here on on uh, that the, the startup whisperer. Perhaps we'll see. Yeah. But you have
1: to acknowledge. Can we can we please just elephant in the room? Kevin Potts has a world class Post-it game. I mean, <laughs> you have like the A game Post-it notes because I'm I'm very like. You know, neat little stacks and OCD. The whiteboard behind you is like the stuff dreams are made of. It, yes. I don't even care if that's your grocery list. That is <laughs> next level organization, Kevin. That is right there. That's a piece of advice. Just I, do that.
2: I am still, yeah, I'm still a paper and post-it person. I can't do any of my organization on my computer. It just, I'm not a, I'm not native to it. It's not native to me.
0: Right. Hey, whatever works, whatever yeah. works, right? Yep. but I would echo Kelly's sentiment uh, and, and to our listeners may have missed that just over Kevin's right shoulder. You see this gorgeous uh, project That's board amazing. with post-it notes and labels. You could map out <laughs> world domination on that thing. So very capable. Uh, and that might be what's on there. Who knows? We can't quite see. No. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so All right. So let's make sure folks know how to connect with you, Kevin. How, you know, who knows? Uh, um, if they yeah. want to leverage your experience on the startup tech side sure. uh, or if they want to compare notes uh, as you know in their military journeys, how can folks connect with you? Yeah.
2: So my probably the best way to reach out to me is via email. My email address is Kevin K-E-V-I-N Potts P-O-T-T-S, the number seven at gmail.com. So that's kevinpotts seven at gmail.com. No periods, no spaces or anything like that, Scott. Also on LinkedIn, I think the traditional linkedin.com backslash Kevin Michael Potts is my LinkedIn on Twitter. I'm at Kevin Potts seven. And so those are probably the best ways to reach out to me, Scott.
0: We're going to make it easy. We're going to put those links in 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 the show notes. So you're one click away from connecting with Kevin. We want to help facilitate and connect those conversations. So, hey, uh, a blast talking with you, Kevin. I really appreciate it. But hey, before we we sign off, Kelly Barner, gosh, uh, I'm convinced this is clone number seven I'm talking to today because of all the things she's got cooking. Buyer's uh-huh. meeting point, uh, art of procurement, mm-hmm. uh, dial P for procurement here at the supply chain now, and beyond all of that, constant, a lot of service work and a lot of work uh, on behalf of our veterans community, which we very much appreciate. So Kelly, how can folks connect with you?
1: Probably the easiest way is LinkedIn. I don't have a simple number as seven. It's like Kelly Barner 64333 something. Um, But if you just stick Kelly Barner into there, add procurement if you have any trouble finding me. I'm always glad to connect with people, whether procurement, supply chain, or military veterans. Please do reach out.
0: Awesome. Wonderful. Hey, big thanks to Kevin Potts. Big thanks. To Kelly Barner. I uh, appreciate you both joining us here today. Kelly, we welcome you as a special guest host anytime, anytime. And Kevin will have to have you back on uh, offering up your startup whisperer uh, advice and expertise. Really enjoyed that. Uh, hey, listeners, on behalf of our entire team here at Veteran Voices, thanks for joining us. We invite you to find us and subscribe to wherever you get your podcast from. Big thanks again to our partners over at Vets2Industry. You can check them out at vets 2 Uh, beyond it all Scott Luton here wishing all of our listeners nothing but the best do good give forward be the change that's needed and on that note we'll see you next time right back here on Veteran Voices thanks everybody